This recording is a ministry of Grace Bible Church of Pleasant Hill, California. We want to thank you for listening and invite you to visit us each Lord's Day on our campus located at 40 Cleveland Road, Pleasant Hill, California, or at any time at gbcph.org. John 14. Well, it's been uh, quite an ending to this last year. Um, Those of you that aren't aware, or maybe some of you who are watching online have not uh, been privy to just personal matters here in our church. Uh, My dad died uh, on December 13th, and then um, uh, less than six days later, my aunt, my mom's sister, also died rather unexpectedly. So... It's quite a <clears throat> quite a blow in terms of just the emotional component, you know, to 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 to, to happen when it did and how it did at the end of uh, of the year. I just want to thank you on behalf of our family, on behalf of my mom, myself, with uh, all my heart for your your condolences, your your notes, your many cards, and it really lifted her up, especially and. Emails, texts, and uh, surprise flowers left at the door and things, things like that. Um, we're a family, and I'm really grateful for belonging in this family and really grateful for each and every one of you. You know, when, after he died, it just set me on this journey of reflection, and so I went to different texts to meditate, and John 14 was one of those. And so, uh, really, I just want to bring to you well, some of the things that the Lord ministered to my heart. Uh, this, these chapters, chapters 13 to 17, is the farewell discourse, as it's been called, of the Lord Jesus as he was preparing to leave for the cross and preparing his disciples for <clears throat> a great hole they would feel in their hearts. And it was through his departure, his death on the cross. So I'm reading in John 14, verses 1 through 7. The focus really is verses 1 through 3. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, uh, my prayer is very simple. <clears throat> Just give me strength as we reflect on this together and show us Christ. Show us Christ through your word. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you all. Thank you all. These are some of the Lord's uh, best known and most beloved words. He comforts the troubled hearts of his disciples just before his departure. <clears throat> and uh, why were they troubled? Well, there was more coming than they knew, but their hearts were already troubled. Uh, you remember these, these men, these 11 apostles at this point, who were surrounding Jesus, you know, think about what they had put into, into this. Uh, they had ab- abandoned their secular occupations in order to follow Jesus. They put their lives on the line. They placed their livelihoods on the line. Many of them had left behind uh, family they faced hardship. They were ostracized by many of their fellow Jews because they were following Jesus and believing in him. They'd, essentially, we'd say they'd risked everything. And, and then here's this really odd combination of events. You know, the Sunday before this, as we refer to it, and they had this glorious day when Jesus entered triumphantly into Jerusalem. Everyone, the crowd was saying, Hosanna in the highest, and blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And now here, here they are in what is uh, the end here of what is called the... Uh, the Last Supper, as we refer to it, or the last Passover with his disciples. And in the middle of this, he tells them that one of them was going to turn against him. One of them was going to betray Jesus. And 
some of the disciples just very heartfeltly said, well, is it me, Lord? <laughs> is it me? Is it me? And then, and then and Jesus dismissed Judas, and it's not altogether clear that they understood that Judas was the one betraying him because Jesus kept on speaking that he was going to leave them, and where he was going this time, they could not go with him. And Peter speaks up and says, Lord, I'll go anywhere you have to go. I'll follow you anywhere. I'll rise to the occasion. I'll lay down my life for you. And Jesus says, Peter, Peter, you're going to deny me, even you, three times before morning comes. Was Peter the one that Jesus was saying was going to betray him? And so their hearts, their hearts are really getting in turmoil now as they think about this. And it's going to get worse. Jesus knows within a few hours he's going to be arrested. In a few hours he will be arrested, he'll be tried, and then he'll be crucified. They're going to scatter. Uh, their, their hearts are going to be broken. They're going to be filled with disillusionment. Sure, this is not a sign of victory to them at this point. I mean, the cross to you and me is one thing. The cross to them at that point was a sign of Roman power. You know, we, you know, we decide and we... we we take lives and, and so forth. Uh, and so this was utter defeat for them at that moment. Messiah is not supposed to die like this. In their minds is what they're thinking. And they would face shame. They would face some um, fear. And Jesus knows all this. He understands that. And you know, some of these same emotions are experienced today uh, as a result of being committed to Jesus. You ever struggle with disillusionment? You ever had doubts? <laughs> uh, you ever ask yourselves, is it really worth it? Well, yeah. The same, some of the same emotions will be encountered, and some of you have already encountered as a result of being a Christian, seeking to follow him. Well, Jesus is aware of all that fills their hearts. He's aware of all that fills your hearts. He is aware of what, what is the cause of turmoil in some of you. And here's the astounding thing. He's aware of all this, and he, even though he is about to face the greatest suffering imaginable, even though he, who knew no sin, is about to be made sin by God the Father, and he's going to experience the wrath of God in a spiritual sense, and he is going to experience a human experience, a, a horrible death and crucifixion, even though this is his future he comforts them. What mercy, what love, what empathy is in the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's aware of what brings uh, turmoil and disillusionment in your heart. And he wants to comfort you. These words are for you and me this morning as well. And what does he do? How does he comfort them? Not by promising to fix everything. Not by promising that he's just going to make all things work out here. Not by promising to make their lives happy. Their lives problem-free, trouble-free. Jesus and the gospel and the scripture deals with the real world. Jesus and the gospel does not offer you some sort of shallow, pie-in-the-sky, naive optimism. Life is full of trouble. 2020, trouble. <laughs> 2021, trouble. Happy New Year. Guess what's coming in 22? <laughs> trouble. <laughs> On some level, right? To some degree, we're all going to face something in, in, in the coming year. And so Jesus deals with reality. And he grounds their faith not in one another, Peter's going to let you down. Even Peter, the rock. <laughs> and he grounds their hope, not in the present world, but in the future world, the world to come. I will return and take you to be with me. That's what he does here. You know, there, it's important to note that because there are some who preach a gospel that offers a trouble-free life. <laughs> right? What is Joel Osteen's uh, book called? Your Best Life Now. Right. <laughs> Sales for that probably went down in 2020. <laughs> Your best life now? Really? 
Yeah, if only you have enough faith to elevate you to this place, you see. In some cases, only if you give enough money, you can have your best life now. But the scriptures and the Lord Jesus is authentic. It, it, it deals with reality. Saying that is an absolute lie. It's just not the way it is. That's more than Jesus promised for this life, and it's infinitely less than what he truly promises to give us in himself and in the age to come, you see. And so we don't buy into that lie, beloved. Um, Jesus tells you, his disciples, and he tells you and me how to face life, not how to escape it. How to face life as it really is, not how to escape it. He doesn't give you some sort of naive promise, pie in the sky, view of life. John 16, in this world you have trouble. That's the truth of it, you see. And there's no escaping it, right? Christians, you and I are not promised that our lives will be insulated from pain, from suffering, from disease. Why? Because we live in a fallen and broken world. When our first fathers rejected the authority of God, it has sent us into a broken world, an alienated world, a world separated from God. We're under the judgment of God. And every one of us is going to experience disappointment, betrayal, failure, and some very powerful personal loss, such as myself. There's no escaping this. The gospel is given to us. The words of Jesus are given to us that we may face it and remain true to him, keep our stability, our spiritual stability. Uh, what does he do? In this critical hour to comfort them, let me repeat it again. What's he do? He grounds their faith, not in one another, but in himself. Believe in me. And he grounds their hope, not in this world, but the world to come. We have a divine Savior to believe in. And we have a secure future to anticipate. That's the focus of his words here, uh, especially in verses 1 through 3. There's more in the chapter, of course. He speaks of the gift of the Holy Spirit and so far. I'm not going that far. Look at how it begins. He says, verse 1, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And the syntax of this language in the original language implies that, that they were already a fearing. In other words, what he is saying is stop letting your hearts be fearful or anxious, troubled. You can stop that. How? How, Jesus? Believe in God. Believe also in me. Now, there are some who take this to be a word to Peter, because in John's Gospel, as he writes, he had just told Peter, you're going to deny me uh, three times. And, and maybe some think he was saying to Peter, look, don't let your heart be so troubled. You, you can trust me, <clears throat> even though he had just said that. But the, the you here, the your, is plural, which is why then it says your hearts. Don't let your hearts, all of you, don't let your hearts be troubled. How? Believe in God. Believe also in me. And the verb believe is a very key uh, word in the Gospel of John. You know, the Gospel of John is called by some the Gospel of Belief. You know, you know why? Well, how does he conclude his Gospel? He says, these things have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and in believing you may have life in his name. Uh, John uses the verb pistuo, which means to believe. He uses that verb 98 times in this gospel. That's more than all the other gospels combined. And when he uses the verb pistuo, or to believe, he always, almost always he uses a preposition. It's believe upon, or believe in, or believe into, you see. In other words, belief here is not just a sort of mental assent to some facts. He wants you to believe upon Christ, believe into Him. 
And so belief in the gospel of belief, the gospel of John, is more than intellectual agreement to some creed. It is confidence. It is trust placed in a person, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what faith or belief, pistuo, means in the gospel of John. You know, in, in 2012, Nick Walenda, one of the great Walenda family high-wire people, you know, act, he walked on across a cable across the front of the Niagara Falls, all the way across. Now, some people have done that down on the river below, but, but he went right across Niagara Falls on a cable. He believed that he could do it, right, or he wouldn't have done it. He believed the cable would hold him up. He believed that the strap would keep him secure, but he didn't believe in until what? Until he stepped on the cable. <laughs> That's when he trusted. He entrusted himself into, into what he had confidence. And that's what Jesus is calling his disciples and you and me too. He's calling us to be, believe in him, to entrust ourselves to him, even as we do to God. That's astounding. Huh? Judas will be a traitor. They'll see that in a few hours. Peter won't be such a rock. <laughs> He's going to deny me three times. Trust ultimately in me, is what he is saying. Put your faith, your confidence in me, in my words, in my promises, in my person, in what I'm telling you. Trust in me just as you trust in God. That's astounding, really. When you think about what Jesus is saying here, he clearly links himself to the God the Father as the appropriate object of saving faith. Believe in me just as you believe in God. That's just astounding. I mean, we're used to it, right? Uh, we're Christians, and we just went through an Advent series and reflected on the deity of Christ and his person and so forth. But try to place yourself for a minute in, the, in that moment there for, uh, in the context of their experience, right? Here's a, uh, here's a man with 11 of his friends. They're all Jewish friends. They're, they're finishing a meal together. And what do Jewish people believe? They're monotheists, the Lord, the Lord our God. He is one. And here is Jesus, a man looking at them, and he says, Believe in God, well, believe also in me. <laughs> believe in me as you do in God. That, that's just astounding when you think about it. But that's what Jesus calls us to. Have confidence in me, the same degree and level of confidence that you can have in God. In chapter 12, verse 44 uh, John records that Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. In other words, you're not merely believing in me. You're believing in God when you believe in me. Again, this is just phenomenal. And that's what Jesus is asking you and me to do today. He's asking you to trust him as very God. In verse 9, he says, Whoever has seen the Father has seen me. Verse 11, who has seen me, excuse me, has seen the Father. And he says in verse 11, uh, whoever believes in me, excuse me, let me get the right verse there, uh, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Imagine saying that. God, the Creator, the Father, the Eternal, He's in me. <laughs> what an You're used to hearing these kinds of things. We understand their minds are swimming. Their heads are going around in circles. In chapter 16, 15, still in part of the farewell discourse, Jesus says, all that the Father has is mine. Can you imagine that? All that the Creator God has is mine, he says. And so what really sets Jesus of Nazareth apart from all other religious leaders and teachers like Buddha and Confucius or you name him or her, what sets Jesus apart is not merely his teachings, they are different, but the, the particularity and the exclusivity of his call. He doesn't merely say, believe what I'm teaching you. He says, believe in me. <laughs> believe in me. I am 
salvation. Salvation is in me, not merely in my teachings. That's what sets him apart from all these other, uh, all these other spiritual teachers. Why Jesus? Jesus says, I am the way. I am the way to the Father. I am the only way to the Father. Not merely I will show you the way or I'll, I'll tell you about the way or I'll draw you a map that is the way. He says, I am the way. Believe in me, you see. I, and he is the way. Why? Because he's the truth. He is the truth, the revelation of God himself. And he is himself the life, the life we need, spiritual, eternal life, he says. And so Jesus, when he says to these men, Believe in God? Yes, you do, don't you? Believe also in me. This is what he's claiming. Believe in him. Trust him, beloved, because he himself is the way, the truth, and the life. It's something to, to really accentuate today and reflect on. Faith in God must be faith in Christ. The faith that rests on Jesus rests on God. Alexander McLaren of preacher from other time, he said, faith in Christ is faith in God, and faith in God, which is not faith in Christ, is imperfect, incomplete, and will not last. Trust, to trust in Him, he says, is to trust in the Father. It's not enough to say a person believes in God, or a God. There's no other name under heaven by which we can be saved. And that is the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one can come to the Father except through Him. That is through faith in Him. And that's why Jesus says to him, and He says to you and me this morning, Are your heart, is your heart troubled? Believe in me. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. I can give you rest. We come to a person, Christian. Christianity, beloved, reflect on this for a moment. Christ, Christian faith is not merely an ethic. Some people reduce Christianity to an ethic. Does Christianity have morals? Absolutely. But it's not merely an ethic, a list of morals. It is, it's a person. Uh, Christianity is not, is not simply a creed, a list of truths. Do we have a creed? Yes, we do. But Christianity is not merely mental assent to a creed. It is what? Union with a person through faith in that person. And so through the miracle of the new birth, we place our faith in Jesus, we believe in Him, and we are united to Him spiritually and we receive all that is His. What is His becomes yours. That's why He, the individual, is the way, the truth, and the life. And these verbs, believe, are imperatives. They're commands. But they're not mere commands. They're not like just naked commands. You know, it's, they, have, they, have the, they have the implication of an invitation. Because he begins with, let not your hearts be troubled. Come, believe in me. <laughs> Trust in me. And that's what the Lord is always saying to you, beloved, in this life and whatever it is you're facing. Is, don't look out there. Look to me. Come back to me. Trust in me. Um, trust him with everything. To believe in Christ is to come to Him as your King, as your Lord. Trust Him with your life, your very life. But when you believe in Christ, when you believe in Jesus, you're also trusting Him with your death. And that became all the more clear to me, you know, um, watching my father leave this world, being present there in his last, last breath is knowing that he had trusted Christ not only with his life in his late 50s, but that he had also entrusted Christ with his death. And that's what we need to keep in mind at times 
the completeness of what it means to trust in Christ and his capacity to comfort you even in maybe the most darkest hour, right, you will face, which will be your own death. Are you prepared for that? Are you prepared for that moment when you leave here? Do we prepare like crazy for so many things and many of those things don't even come about, do they? How many of your plans were blown away in 2020? <laughs> we prepare for this. We prepare for that. We, we think we got to be ready. We got to do that. And many of the things we fear never even come about. I saw something this week that reminded me of an article I had read years ago uh, about a prepper. You know what, I'm talking about a prepper, one of those guys that prepares for the end of the world when all society is going to crumble here. And this guy had this massive underground bunker and everything he had prepared. Uh, he had food for I don't know how long. He had water, this, that, and the other thing. He was preparing for Y2K. Well, somewhere around 2015 is when I read the article and he had the place up for sale, you see. Who wants a bunker for the end of the world, you know? We go to extreme to prepare for things that never happen. And the one thing, here's one thing that is sure about every one of you. You're going to die. How much do we prepare for that? Did you know that one out of every one person dies? <laughs> and that's the truth. Have you prepared for that moment, beloved? Let not your heart be troubled, says Jesus. Trust in me. Trust me with your life. Trust me with your death. And though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, he will be your good shepherd. The New Testament says that Christ is the bishop of our soul. In this world you have trouble. But be of good cheer, he says. I have overcome the world. He has overcome sin and death. And faith in Christ is faith in that as well. Trusting him at that moment. And so we have a divine savior to believe in when our hearts become troubled, when we face disillusionment. But we also have a sure hope to anticipate. And that's what he tells them. Verse 2 and 3, he says, In my Father's house are many rooms, you see. What's he doing? He's expanding upon believe in me. Believe in me and believe in this in particular, that in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also you know, when people are really suffering, and I know this from both sides of the equation, right? Uh, when people are in sorrow, they, they need simple words. They don't need you to unfold a systematic theology. What could be more simpler than, than this? He says, trust me. Here's what I'm telling you. In my father's house are many rooms. I'm going to go prepare a place for there for you. I'm going to come back and I'm going to take you there to be with me. You see. Anything, anything simpler than that, and yet piles of books this high have been written about, what does he mean? You know? What's he mean? You know? and, and, you, and you go through them, you know what? You're not comforted at all. <laughs> but it's the simplicity of this language, which they would have heard in their own Jewish mindset, you know, that really, that, that is comforting. There's a fourfold promise here from Jesus. What he says is, where I'm going, and we'll talk about that, there's plenty of room there. Secondly, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not abandoning you. I'm going to prepare a place for you. Thirdly, I will return. Remember, he's going to the cross. He's going to disappear from them. But I will return. And then fourthly, I'm going to take you to there to be with me where I am. A fourfold promise wrapped up in that little statement right there. Where's the place that Jesus is going? Well, he refers to it as his father's house. Can anything be more homey than that? <laughs> Where are you going? Uh, he, he's going to his father's house. Where did he come from? He said he came from heaven, right? 
Uh, there's debate about all these words here, of course, like every time. But, uh, for example, th- some say, well, the only other place in the Gospel of John that Father's house is used is in chapter 2, where he says that uh, you've turned my Father's house into a den of thieves. And so they say, when he says, I'm going to my Father's house, he must be talking about the temple in Jerusalem. And some would say, well, no, I mean, that's going to be destroyed. So why would he talk about that? Well, now the church is the temple. So what he means is that he's going to go and, and dwell in the church. And, and, and the comfort he gives them is that he's coming with, with the Holy Spirit later. You know, none other than a, uh, a great New Testament uh, D- scholar, D.A. Carson, just put it very simply. He says, sometimes the simplest explanation is the best. He says, where is he going? He's going to heaven, he says. His father's house refers to heaven. In verse 12, he says, he's going back to the father. And where did he come from? He came from heaven. If he's returning to his father in verse 12, then he is come returning to where he came from which is heaven throughout the gospel time and time again jesus refers to heaven as the father's abode to the place where he came from in john 6 38 uh, uh, jesus refers to himself as the bread of from heaven and so forth on and on and on it goes so where is jesus now where is the resurrected jesus of nazareth right now the god man right now hebrews chapter one tells us after making purifications for sins what did he do He sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. That's where he is. Uh, What in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20, Paul describes the power of the resurrection. He says that the Father uh, worked this great power in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenlies, the heavenly places, you see. And that's where the Lord Jesus is right now. That's where he was going. The, what he's saying that when he goes and ultimately comes to, his, to the place where he is going to abide, where he's going to dwell, where the Father dwells, that there's plenty of room there for them. Because he's going to prepare a place there for them that they might be where he is or be with them where he is. You know, here in John 17... During the high priestly prayer, he says in verse 5, Father, glorify me in your own presence. Where's that? In heaven. Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Before the creation of the world, he was in the abode of God in the heavens. And then in verse 24, his prayer for the disciples, he says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. So where is he talking about? He is talking about heaven. How does he prepare a place for them and for you and me there in the heavens, in the place where God dwells? Well, don't picture Jesus busy in heaven uh, all these days, you know, adding on additions, right? Uh, trying to get, make enough room for, for all of you. This is such a beautiful, simple metaphor for us to picture. A house and a place there for you and me. A space in the presence of God. Acceptance. A dwelling. An abode in God's house in his very presence. And how does he prepare a place there? His going is the preparing. Where is he going? He's going in the next few hours to Gethsemane, to the cross, to the tomb, through resurrection, and then his ascension, as we saw in Acts chapter 1. His going is the means of preparing the place for them, a place in the presence of of the living God. It's as if Jesus says, when I die, I'm not defeated. When I am die, you may think it's the end, but it's not the end. It's not the end at all. Through my death and through my resurrection, I will not only deliver you from the guilt of your sin, but I will make you acceptable to the living God, my Father, and your heavenly Father, and I will bring you there where I'm going to be for an eternity. That's what he's saying. 
Think about that, beloved. Peter says in 1 Peter 3.18, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, or the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. What a statement. We say it, it just comes right off our lips, but think about that. He died for our sins, your sins, the just one for the unjust, the unrighteous, ultimately, that he might bring you to God. What a statement, huh? Paul says elsewhere that he's going to present you holy and blameless before the living Lord because you're going to stand in his presence, not on your report card, not on the basis of your life record, but you're going to be dressed in the robes of his own righteousness. That's just tremendous. You think through that. Don't picture Jesus running around building houses as fast as he can. I know he was a carpenter, but don't picture that. Now, I didn't mention this in the first hour, but I had it in my notes. So I just I was, you know, flying, go where you go. But what, 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 the, what the original readers of the Gospel of John, and maybe these very disciples would have eventually gotten to thinking through, is seeing here an analogy in the Jewish custom of, of marriage and betrothal. They might have seen that analogy in his own words because uh, in the marriage uh, uh, methodology of Jewish comp, uh, uh, customs, there was a betrothal, first of all, where the groom would uh, make a pledge <coughs> and then they would seal a covenant through drinking a glass of wine, a cup of wine, and then he would leave for one year, 12 months. The groom would go to his father's house and at his father's house, he would build an annex, sometimes on top of the father's house, and make room for the bride, and then go back, return, and bring the bride to the father's house where he's built the annex. And we read in Ephesians 5 that the analogy may be there because uh, the church is considered what? The bride of Christ. So they may have come to eventually understand, maybe not at that moment, I doubt it, but see in there that when he took the cup of the new covenant and said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, he was the groom making the promise. And then he spoke with them. He said, I'm going to go to the father's house. It's like every groom does after the wine is drunk. And I'll be back. I'm coming back. And I'm going to take you to be with me. And I have prepared a place that will be there waiting for you. And all this will be consummated, I think, in the great marriage supper of the Lamb. So what is he referring to then when he talks about I will come again and take you uh, to be with me where I am. Well, it depends on, on, on how you've interpreted what he said before, right? The, so some, some commentators feel like, well, he's just talking about three days from now. After, on Easter Sunday, he's going to return to them. They'll, they'll see him then, and they'll, they'll be comforted. And some say, no, no, he's, he's coming back in the person of the Holy Spirit, and will dwell in them. There's the abode. He'll be dwelling with them. But listen, if the Father's house is a reference to his ultimate, final, eternal destiny, which is heaven, the new heavens that I'm talking about, if that's what the Father's house refers to, then the coming back does not refer to the resurrection three days later, does not refer to their individual experiences when they die, but refers to to the unified experience of the bride of Christ when the groom returns in the second coming and then there is the, the resurrection of the saints in Christ. And I think that's what he is referring to here. He's talking there, therefore, about this ultimate destiny. And when he returns in the second coming and we are told that the, 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 the resurrection of the saints or believers will take place, and it's only then, you see, and from then on, uh, be it through the millennial kingdom first or be it all the way to the eternal state of the new heavens and the new earth, it's only then that we'll have the fullness of joy and that is after the resurrection when we experience a bodily and spiritual existence in the presence of God forever. And so I think that's what this is ultimately speaking about, to remain with Him where He is we have to be made like Him. And we are told in Scripture that we will become like Him when He returns. He is the first fruits. He is the only one who has experienced that 
that human life now becoming a resurrected human life that I think he is talking about here, about that mutual experience that we will all have in the second coming. And then you and I will enter into that glorious inheritance that we have prepared for us in heaven. Peter puts it this way in 1 Peter chapter 1. He says, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept where? In heaven for you. You who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. And so he grounds their faith, not in each other, because we will let each other down. Even a Peter, the rock, will let you and me down. But he grounds their faith in himself. Believe in me, trust in me as God. Trust my word, trust what I have promised. And then he roots or grounds their hope, not in this world. In this world, you have trouble, but in the world to come, I will return and take you to be with me where I am. You see, that's, this is the basis for stability in the Christian life when, when the waves start hitting you. When the waves start hitting you, when you, disillusionment comes across your path, when you lose a dear one, when you lose a loved one. It's not that you don't grieve. It's not that you're perfectly stable. There are things in life that are going to rock you. And you'll teeter. I teetered. I tottered. But what keeps you standing? What brings stability to your walk with the Lord Jesus? It's having faith in Him and having your hope your hope, your confidence, not in this world, but in the world to come, in what he's promised you and me, an unfading inheritance, glory, resurrection, transformation. It's having your hope rooted there. That's what gives you stability. If your hope, let me tell you this, if your hope and your source of joy is in this world, you will not only just teeter, you're going to fall. Because whatever your hope may be in this world, I can tell you right now, it's under decay. It's going to decay. It's going to break. It's going to get lost. It's going to die. And then your hopes are going to die. And you're going to be destroyed. I've seen some people, they just come completely apart. I mean completely apart. Inconsolable. When some things like this happen in their lives. Why? They just saw their God die. That was all their hope right there. And it crumbled before the very eyes, you see. In this world, there'll be disease, there'll be sickness, there'll be suffering, there'll be disillusionment, there'll be heartbreak, there'll be, there'll be death. There'll be death. You're not insulated from these things and neither am I. In fact, Paul said in the chapter on, on the resurrection, remember in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says in there, if in Christ we have hoped in this life only, we are, we are of all people the most to be pitied. <laughs> if you trusted in Christ only for what he might give you in this life, <laughs> and there is no resurrection, you blew it, that's what he says. You, you are most to be pitied by most people. Why? Because this was your best life now. <laughs> and you missed out. But Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of the resurrection. Paul says, your life, Colossians chapter 3, set your mind on the things above, where Christ is at, the right hand of the Father, right, seated above. Then he says, your life is hidden in Christ with God. That's your true identity, you see. When Christ appears, right, then you will be revealed with him 
in glory. That's when you'll actually look like a saint. <laughs> Think about this story um, about, uh, it's, it has various versions and various, various cultures of a, a king or a prince who leaves his, uh, his castle and he, he dresses up like a beggar and then spends time among the populace, right? And people mistreat him and they mock him, right? Uh, because his real identity is hidden. And, and, and that is what's true about you and me as Christians, right? What you are and what you're going to be, I remember C.S. Lewis saying, if we could see it right now, you'd be tempted to bow down and worship him. Because of what you're going to be, you'll be made like him, you see. Your real identity is coming. And the world looks at you and thinks you're a strange creature, <laughs> They don't understand why you live for how you live. They don't understand why you spend your money the way you spend, your, spend it. They don't understand why you view your sexuality the way you do. It looks like you're just wasting life, you see. But your life is hidden in Christ with God. Your identity. And when he returns, then your, your true identity will be revealed with him in glory. Set your hope in that sure promise of, of the life to come the world to come. And that's what Jesus does. He roots their faith in himself and roots their hope in the world to come, in the new heavens and the new earth. And it's this, when you understand this, when you believe this, it's this and only this that removes the sting of death. And death will be your last enemy. You face a lot of hardships. Your last one, your last enemy will be death. It's this that removed the sting in my heart. Not without pain. I grieved. It was rough watching my dad go. That was pretty tough. But I do not grieve as one who has no hope. Because my dad had placed his faith in Jesus Christ. And so the sting of death is numbed. And grace fills your heart and comfort when you realize what's coming. What this set me to thinking and meditating on for a while was what my dad was experiencing now. You know, I've thought about this for years and studied back and forth, but... Uh, not the kind of subject you want to be thinking about all the time, right? What are you doing? I'm reading about death again, honey. Yeah. So no. But this, you know, these last two weeks, that's where my heart's been. In various ways, meditating. So where is my dad now? If you would uh, indulge me for a few more minutes. Where's my dad now? Well, let me talk to, through this a bit. To a man who was crucified next to him, Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. And in the Gospel of Luke, when he records this, this day, today, is a, is a, is a, a phrase he uses. It's very emphatic. And he records that Jesus told him these words before he said that, which means this is important. He said, truly I say to you. Today, this very day, you will be with me in paradise. You who lived your whole life in sin and iniquity, but because you looked to me in the last moments of your life, even you today will be with me in paradise. And theologians, of course, begin the discussion of, well, technically it wasn't today because he was in the tomb for three days. Yeah, whatever, you know. He was comforting this man, <laughs> And the promise was of immediate tra transfer into what is called paradise. Uh, that, that word and its usage in the Hebrew, and then later translated into the Greek, has its roots in a Persian word which referred to um, just a beautiful garden, right? Sometimes we'll say, wow, this is paradise on earth, right? When you see glorious vegetation. Uh, it's used in the New Testament, really, I think, in only two other places, and 
And one of them is, is by Paul when he says in, in 2 Corinthians that in 12.3, when he says, I know a man, remember when he talks about going to heaven, he says that he was taken up to the third heaven. And, and in, there, in that context, he uses that same word of paradise. So I'm saying to you that paradise is a reference to heaven. Now let's think about heaven for just a few minutes. Again, indulge me for a few moments. Um, we, we went over this in Acts chapter 1 when Jesus was carried up into the heavens. Uh, and we, we talked about how in Jewish thinking and in the usage of the word heavens in the Old Testament and the New, subsequently, it's used in three different ways. Sometimes heaven simply refers to the sky, the what we call here our atmosphere. You look up, there's heaven. That's one usage of heaven. And the second usage of the word, word heaven is the planets, right? What you could see in the solar system. It's the planets, the twinkling stars. That's the heavens. Uh, it's that way right in the beginning of Genesis. But the third usage of the word, which is probably why Paul speaks of the third heaven, is a spiritual realm that surrounds us, right? Here we talked about in Daniel, and we, and we talked about this in Acts chapter 1, that there's a spiritual reality. It is heaven that surrounds us. And it's not that you need to shoot up in a spaceship and go for a hundred years far enough and fast enough to finally get to the heavens. It's a spiritual realm. God is spirit, and he dwells in a spiritual realm. And so someone says, but then how could God, if God is omnipresent, why is he spoken of as dwelling in heaven? Well, just like when he dwells in the temple, he manifests his glory in, in particular places in different ways. And in the heavens, the third heaven, the Father is manifesting his glory. He is surrounded by angelic beings. And that is where right now the Son of God is seated next to him, the God-man in the heavens, the heavenly places. That is paradise. So sometimes theologians refer to it as the intermediate state because it's not yet the resurrection. It's not yet the new heavens and the new earth, but it's the spiritual realm after death. Death, intermediate state, heavens, paradise, then the final heaven with resurrection bodies. And so that's what I think you can appreciate and understand that when your beloved loved ones go in faith in Christ, they don't merely enter nothingness, but they enter the place where Christ receives them, where Christ dwells. Think back at Acts chapter 7 when Stephen was being stoned to death. And he stood up, he was testifying to Christ, and then he says that he, he saw there, he saw the heavens open. He had that vision where he saw Christ, not seated, but standing as if to receive him. And then he said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. You can rest assured that if a thief who came to faith in the last second was going to be in paradise, that Stephen was there in paradise as well. And he was received into the presence of of the living God where Christ is. Now again, you'll read different theologies and this gets sort of dissected. Sometimes you're really splitting hairs. I, I remember when the early church fathers believed this. That's, this was the majority of the early church fathers believed this. It was only a few centuries later that this whole talk of purgatory began to develop and so forth. But the, most of the early church fathers believed this, that we go straight to paradise consciously where we're in the presence of God. John Wesley would later split some hairs. He said, paradise is only the porch of heaven. Okay. <laughs> he says, it's in, the, it's in heaven. He means the new heavens, the final. It's in heaven only that there's fullness of joy, the final state. Well, I get what he's saying. He's trying to say that even if you refer to the next intermediate state as heaven, Realize that's not the end. Because you are going to experience a bodily res resurrection and ultimately we will enter into the new heaven and the new earth to be with the Lord where he is forever. And that's why Paul could say, you know, for me to live is Christ and to die is what? Gain. 
And he would say, you know what, I'd like to stick around and help you and, and do more with you, but really, you know where my heart is? I'd rather depart and be with Christ. Be with him. So where's my dad? I mean, my dad is in a conscious existence in the presence of God with his Savior. Not yet in the final dwelling place of the Father's house of the new creation, but still conscious and aware of glory in the in peace, in communion. I believe he has some sort of corporeal spiritual existence, body, because you think about the fact that on the Mount of Transfiguration, Moses and Elijah were manifest, and they weren't some mist, right? They weren't vapor. They were identifiable as corporeal beings, but that was not yet the resurrection body. And you think about the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews reminds us in chapter 12, remember? He says that we are surrounded by a cloud of witnesses. And we went, when we went through that chapter, we said, I think that the witnesses are, are those who are witnessing us run the race that they had to run. They're observing us. They're watching. Yes, they're examples but they're also observing us. And he says later in chapter 12 of Hebrews, he says that when we gather to worship, we gather with the holy assembly of, of angels, not visible to us when the church gathers to worship. And the, the, the congregation of the firstborn enrolled in heaven, he says. I think my dad's worshiping with in that sense. Have you prepared for the last enemy? You prepare for a lot of other things, don't you? Economies, weather. Are you prepared for the last day, for that moment? Your breath goes away? Will you have peace? Are you prepared for disillusionment when people let you down, when following Christ is hard? Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in Christ. Trust Him as your prophet, priest, king, your savior. Root your hope not in things that dissipate and crumble. Don't make your life about treasure here, treasure there. And your heart won't be broken so much. And you'll have stability in, in your suffering, stability in your Christian life. You know, my last, second to last or third to last meeting with my dad was really rough. Of course, the last one was the roughest, but this was also pretty rough. I had gone to see him about a month or so before he died, and he was just incoherent and just a bad visit, and mom and I were there alone, and he was crying, he was crying, and he, he couldn't articulate what he wanted to say, and he was so confused, and I could just barely keep it together, you know, like I am right now, and um, I had read an article written by a Christian entitled something to the effect of, it was about reflecting on Alzheimer's, and how horrible that disease is, and, and the title was something to the effect of, Will I forget God? And that was in my mind. And I'm looking at my dad, I'm thinking, how horrible this thing is, that he might forget God. And he just kept trying to talk. I just about got, gave up. I was getting ready to go, prayed with him, sang, read. And, and then he got it together somehow and held my hands. The last cogent phrase my dad said to me, now he said others later, because he had his fluctuating moments to my mother, to my sister. The last cogent phrase he said to me, what he got out at that moment, finally, before I walked out of the room, was, I know God saved me. And I thought to myself, that's the last thing I ever hear my dad say? I'm good with it. 
I'm ready to let him go. A month later, I was there in his last breath. Let not your hearts be troubled. Go in peace. Go securely like my dad, knowing that he has prepared a way for you, a place in his presence. He is the groom who's coming back, and one day he will take his bride into eternity. God bless you. Be encouraged. Let's pray.